Hey everyone, Artie here with a quick note that BNI's book Health Communism will be finally officially out next week, this coming Tuesday, October 18th. So if you haven't already pre-ordered a copy, please do. Pre-orders are a huge help to first-time authors like us, and we can't wait for everyone to get their hands on this book. Which brings me to the second thing. Since Health Communism is out this coming week, we wanted to share with you the episode we did on what are called the social determinants of health, which should be a great preamble for anyone about to read Health Communism and which previously was locked to the patron feed. So if you enjoy this episode, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod, get that book, and we'll see you with a brand new episode on Monday in the patron feed. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Artie, Phil, and I are joined by a friend of the panel and longtime death panel correspondent, Abby Cardis. Abby is a perinatal epidemiologist and a postdoctoral research associate at Brown University School of Public Health, working with the People, Place, and Health Collective. Abby, welcome back to the show. Thanks. I need to get a shorter title. I feel like it takes like <laughs> two minutes to read out. <laughs> like, it's, I'm Worker, not, it is, Abby Curtis. You know, yeah, it is always a little bit of a mouthful, but I, I never mind. Um, so last week, the United States CDC issued new guidance that further rolled back its recommendations for non-pharmaceutical COVID protections. And we will be covering the changes in the guidance um, later on this week in the public episode. But in many ways, this change itself is also an important part of the broader context for today's episode, um, which is about the social determinants of health. Because one of the key points that the CDC has offered as justification for these new loosened guidelines is that they are trying to reflect complex and shifting social factors and, of course, trying to center, quote unquote, equity, (laughs) meaning that rather put pressure on society to make sure people have access to what they need to protect themselves and their community if and when they get sick. The CDC has opted to shift the guidance to reflect the fact that many in our society categorically do not and will not have access to things like testing, paid leave, the extra cash to buy masks, filtration, a place to isolate or quarantine away from the people in your house. And the federal government is not going to do shit about it. And it's an approach that centers equity in that it's a terrifying race to the bottom in the service of justifying the status quo. (laughs) One way of doing it. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Unfortunately, common way of doing it, uh, as we'll get into And this is using uh, this argument is using a theoretical framework that we mention often on death panel to do this, which is the social determinants of health. So it's kind of funny that the timing worked out this way because we've been planning this episode for a while and the justification and framework of these CDC guideline changes. um, And I think the way that it's being sold to the public really sort of is one of the best examples of, I think, how this term is not a sort of neutral or innocuous term in and of itself. There are so many complex meanings just within what the social determinants of health are 
and how it can be used. So I think it's really good for us to just sort of stop and lay the groundwork and talk about what we mean when we say the social determinants of health. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think this conversation has been in the making for a long time. Social determinants of health are a term that we throw out out a lot. But I think what you're saying is a really good point in terms of the context, at least in this particular moment, when this thing is happening, because, you know, the CDC, for example, is not directly saying, oh, blah, 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 the social determinants of health. But essentially what you're saying, B, is that the that all of the things that they are sort of pointing to are saying all, all the sort of non-pharmaceutical intervention stuff, all the social determinants of health, as it were, are bad. Like the the yes. <laughs> uh, all, all of the social factors impacting health in the United States are bad. And so in the context of those things just being bad and us not wanting to exercise any political activity to do anything about that, really therefore here is the new guidance that just sort of accepts things and as they are the yeah. badness. that's not my department yeah <laughs> um but but it's you know the funny thing about this and i'm i'm glad that you brought that up and i'm really happy that we're that we have abby to like help us sort of historicize this because every single time i've encountered people using the term social determinants of health that really left an impression on me it always seemed to be instrumental Mm-hmm. And strategic in this way that I was like, oh, I thought that social determinants of health had this kind of origins in like social medicine and thinking <laughs> about like conditions of work and uh, housing and environment. Um, but all of the times I, I remember most significantly hearing people use it were like one Sima Verma at CMS saying that. By forcing people to work uh, in exchange for Medicaid, putting work requirements, that was somehow doing something about the social determinants. We're like improving the social determinants of health. Um, I remember going to a conference in Texas where United Healthcare was saying, they're like, you know what? You can't re- write prescriptions for shoes, but we're getting into the housing market. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and then I remember going to a conference in where else but Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, hosted by the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. <laughs> where the people who were most talking about social determinants of health were real estate developers oh my God. who were yeah. talking about how by creating healthy communities, they were going like their, the, the central purpose was uh, improving property value. So like <laughs> uh, before we even get into like what the term is or the, the history of it or the way that it's been sort of um, poisoned, it, it's just occurs to me that like those are the kind, it always has been, people using it as a way of like deflecting attention from the fact that we like the United States provides so little in terms of social support for anybody. Yeah. Um, and, and like all of the things that you talked about, be paid leave and everything like that. I've almost never heard people in these sorts of moments, like use that in conjunction with social determinants of health. Um, and instead it's always, you know, in, in some cases it's even shaded into the way that people use it into like behavioral control. Yeah, um, and mm-hmm. like you know, employers uh, who shall remain nameless, uh, <laughs> you know, doing like the uh, pod- like giving out pedometers to their employees in exchange for like a little break on their insurance premiums. So like you know, I, I sort of want to get into like one, where does this term like come from? But two, what explains the fact that to the extent that it's used, it's often used in these incredibly instrumentalized. And, and like uh, uh, very duplicitous ways. Well, I, I think by way of explaining that, let me just really quickly, I guess, offer if we can move back a click and do a, a bit of that definition work. Actually, I know that B has, a, I think, a good definition 
of social determinants of health to throw out for us as far as I know. But I'll I'll offer one that uh, comes from sort of one of these liberal compromised versions of social determinants of health. So here's here's one definition of social determinants of health just to sort of get the ball rolling. And then we can talk about, you know, uses, misuses. And I think really why we think the term is important, actually, and a good use of the term is actually very politically effective or can lead us to very politically effective places. But so here's sort of a one definition of the term. Uh, quote, social determinants of health include where you live, the state of your housing, the food you have access to, your transportation options, how much education you've received, your financial security, and more. For example, if your living conditions mean you don't have nearby access to healthy food or affordable transportation to a better grocery store, don't have access to a safe place to exercise, and can't get much sleep because of your living conditions, you are much more likely to eat poorly, become stressed, get sick, and wind up in an emergency room, unquote. And that definition comes from an article titled, uh, wait for it, Addressing Social Drivers of Health is a Big Opportunity for Health Entrepreneurs. (laughs) (laughs) I love how it takes like a structural analysis and says, and the problem is that, you know, you are becoming uh, stressed. You are becoming tired. You are becoming sick. Not like, oh, you know, society is is making you sick and extracting from you to the point that you are... a husk, you know. Yeah. Well, but this is this really interests me. This use of of the social determinants framework because, I mean, it's all true. You know, if you live in crowded housing, mm-hmm. you're much more likely to contract COVID nineteen, you know, or or spread it to someone in your household. But the social determinants framework, like, we have to understand that science is kind of a social process, and the social determinants framework gets deployed in, for example public health in ways that accord with, you know, kind of the political economy of public health and stuff. So I'm sorry that this is kind of like an abstruse, like run up to what I'm really trying to say. But what I'm really trying to say is that while the framework of social determinants is an important one, it has really old roots in social medicine, its function, certainly within public health, and it sounds like in other fields as well, is to kind of arrest the inquiry at like a specific structural level. So like, In public health, it's very common that it's like, oh, well, we're looking at housing just as kind of a disaggregated, disarticulated risk factor that people are (laughs) self-reporting and we're loading Mm -hmm. it into a regression model and seeing what comes out. And yeah, it seems like people that have, you know, insecure, unstable housing, however we measured that, seem to have worse health outcomes, but it never gets to the point of, but why is it that some people live in substandard housing? You know, why is it that not everyone has quote unquote access to living wages as the healthy people 2020 document? You know, it correctly identifies a living wage as an important social determinant of health, but it doesn't go far enough into really like interrogating the political economic structure. So that's kind of where I see the social determinants. It has this like polymorphic meaning, but how it's often used in the social sciences and in, yeah, like health entrepreneurship or whatever, it serves kind of a, it's almost like a contradictory, it's almost like a contradictory function, right? Like it has the social determinants framework has this immense power to extend the inquiry of, you know, the health sciences all the way back to, you know, the fundamental political economy of the state, but it's also very often instrumentalized to just be like, well, uh, if doctors could prescribe housing, if we could uh, increase, you know, the green space in this really disinvested urban neighborhood by like some marginal amount, then, you know, we're addressing the social determinants of health. And it's like, uh, 
not really. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why I think it's appropriate to start with saying there's kind of the version that you'll hear about it from random liberals or normie public health people or something like that, which often I think, as you're saying, I, I like to think of this as it reduces it to sort of they point to the problem or they, they point to symptoms of certain problems. They, mm-hmm. Like, for instance, there's uh, there's a great Vicente Navarro line, for example, that uh, talks about this. And again, I guess this gets us into some of the more expansive readings of social determinants of health as an idea, but that uh, I think distills this limitation that you're talking about very concretely, which is uh, Navarro says, it is not inequalities that kill, but those who benefit from the inequalities that kill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I think I want to actually just sort of start us at the most base level with the World Health Organization's definition of what social determinants of health are, Um, because it's really tied up into the way that health is framed in this very um, sort of international context as a policy goal, as a kind of collaborative uh, charity oriented goal. And I think it's really important to sort of understand the the very base level concept in and of itself, as we've been discussing, is a kind of open framework. There are not necessarily values, political values um, or political economic values that are embedded into it. But depending on who is using it, like social determinants of health does come to embody various values, some of which are very harmful. So at the sort of most base level, the WHO's definition is that the social determinants of health are, quote, the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age and the, quote, fundamental drivers of these conditions, which in many ways conceptually reflects the sort of definition of health that is in the WHO Constitution, which says, quote, health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So basically health, you know, quote unquote health is not just about medical care. It's about your entire life. And social determinants of health are not in and of themselves inherently good or bad. They are, as is in the name, determinants. So it's all of the things sort of social, structural, environmental, political that affect the conditions of your life, either positive or negative. And while this term, as we're saying, is sort of relatively recent, what it's supposed to reflect is this idea that the only way to really truly improve health is to improve the health of the collective body at a kind of population level, which, you know, would require deep investigations into the social origins of illness, conditions in the workplace, conditions in the environment, all the things that sort of make us sick or assign us to slow death. And for a long time, and I think a lot of ways and maybe also also in name only addressing the quote unquote social determinants of health and trying to improve them has been the stated goal of public health for for a very long time, um, sort of predating this being formalized as a concept. And I think one of the biggest problems, as we've been saying, is the fact that for so long, the approach that many, especially liberal organizations, charities, researchers, people like the WHO, the approach that many have taken has been to attempt to improve the social determinants of health without addressing these underlying fundamental drivers, like the fundamentally political things that they like actually are. Capitalism. Right. Yeah, right. like capitalism. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. It's like we can deal with the things that happen outside of the clinical space as long as they don't, you know, come into contact with anything that challenges or, or deals with directly, even in research terms politics or institutions. I even think about like, you know, uh, people trying to get grants to study these things like, oh, no, 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 no. 
you can't study that relationship. That's too political. You like the NIH will not fund that. Um, like there, there are these boundaries inscribed even in like the research infrastructure that prevent you from that prevent sort of the profession, I, I guess, so to speak, uh, from doing some of this research. Well, right. And I mean, I think this the framework of social determinants of health has really been largely appropriated um, as a kind of sanitized equity mission where the mission is actually to center equity by depoliticizing inequality, mm-hmm. which is why I think ultimately this is, you know, the social determinants of health, even though in a way this is the WHO's primary mission, right? This is like in their goal is towards bettering the collective health of the world. Um, we can never expect an organization like the WHO to solve you know, the negative social determinants of health, because these profound attempts to make social determinants of health apolitical, um, you know, they make the message more palatable, maybe. But, you know, ultimately, it's just hiding the way the world truly is. And there's nothing that we can do to actually address the sort of structural drivers of slow death and sickness and suffering and illness and inequality if we refuse to admit that these things are actually real and that they're driven um, by real dynamics, political economic ones that go way beyond the kind of framework that we like to approach public health or medicine and science as this kind of neutral playing ground that's beyond um, politics in some kind of way. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying and a lot of what Phil is saying just about kind of like the structure of doing science is so important here because, you know, it's fine. It's fine. In fact, I think it's encouraged at this point, you know, to write grants and to do work that are engaging, you know, with the social determinants of health. But what you can't do, you know, what's not allowed is to attach any kind of normative significance to what those social determinants mean. You know what I mean? So it's fine to just document inequalities or as as we say in public health, you know, euphemistically disparities it's right. fine to catalog health disparities by, you know, whatever index of, of social causation you might want to choose, you know, housing, wages. Uh, my personal favorite socioeconomic status is a substitute for class. Um, you know, it's, it's fine to do that, but it has to be confined to this level where you're just kind of chasing the social determinants around the track and documenting the fallout from them because, both politically and, you know, scientifically at the level of like working as an epidemiologist every day, it is frowned upon to insist that, you know, your findings regarding social determinants imply specific political actions, particularly if those actions are redistributive in nature. (laughs) And then at the level of working as an individual scientist, it's difficult, you know, to sort of make the connection between an individual social determinant, you know, the consequence of our fucked up political economy and the political economy itself, because your work is very constrained. The types of interventions, as Phil uh, mentioned, like to, to suggest anything about the about the social determinants of health, you have to do it in the framework of uh, a quote unquote intervention, you know, a public health intervention. And in order to be fundable, that intervention to improve on the social determinants of health has to be kept at the level of something that's achievable, you know, within the material boundaries of an NIH grant. You know, you get five years, you get a finite amount of money, and you have to make the case that 
by studying this, we're going to come, you know, we're going to be able to inform an intervention to improve the social determinants of health. And it's not surprising that what often shakes out of that is really uninspiring stuff. You know what I mean? So uh, if the prob- if the social determinant is, you know, living in a food desert, you know, the interventions are often something like maybe a one-off partnership with one or two corner stores to offer, you know, more healthy items like fruits and vegetables, like close to the register. You know what I mean? Like that's the level of the public health intervention that is incentivized by kind of like the academic research apparatus. And it never, 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 because I mean, you can't, I, I could not like in good faith say to the NIH, like I'm going to accomplish, like I'm going to abolish the value form. You know what I mean? I'm going to accomplish like total overhaul of the political economy of the United States because my findings about, you know, uh, inequalities in COVID deaths really seem to suggest that something is going wrong here. Like there's no, there's no way that you could do that. And so again, you know, science being a social process, like the way that social determinants research shakes out is very, very constrained by, you know, just the political economy of doing science itself, I think. Right. I mean, but I think this is why it's important and interesting to sort of interrogate the term itself, um, social determinants of health, both how it's used now, as we kind of have talked about a little bit already, but also how it or similar terms have been used before. Because obviously, as you're saying, you know, if you just if you're, for instance, like a scientist doing a study or, you know, an academic of any kind doing a study and saying, you know, through this work, I am going to, as you said, like abolish the value form through my <laughs> my paper or whatever, that's not going to achieve that goal. But also, obviously, it has these, you know, these ideas can be really leveraged and used to understand the world and to understand to, you know, push forward changes oh, in totally. the world. And to that end, I think it's interesting to think about social determinants of health. And again, some of this lineage uh, of people who have talked about this more expansively. Um, I know that, for instance, Abby, you and I were talking actually, uh, yesterday about this shortly, how it's funny, there just seems to be this it's like there's this ebb and flow throughout the recent history of the last couple of centuries of sort of health and public health literature where people sort of come in and <laughs> they will have, you know, relatively class conscious or Marxist leanings or something. And they will say, uh, you know, they'll, they'll make big statements about the social and political determinants of health. And then that discourse will sort of just die out for a little while, come back uh, at regular occurrences. Um for instance, in the 19th century, Rudolf Virchow, writing essentially about class power, politics, and the social determinants of health in the context of a cholera outbreak in Berlin, again in the 19th century, uh, writes, quote, is it not clear that our struggle is a social one, that our job, as again, as public health people or or people talking about these issues, at least, that our job is not to write instructions to upset the consumers of melons and salmon, of cakes and ice cream, in short, the comfortable bourgeoisie, but it is to create institutions to protect the poor who have no soft bread, no good meat, no warm clothing, and no bed, and who through their work cannot subsist on rice soup and chamomile tea. May the rich remember during the winter when they sit in front of their hot stoves and give Christmas apples to their little ones that the ship hands who brought the coal and the apples died from cholera. It is so sad that thousands always must die in misery so that a few hundred may live well, unquote. Right. And I think, you know, this is why we try and assert that these... (laughs) kind of frameworks which seek to locate the problem with public health or the problem with medicine as it having become, you know, 
politicized beyond belief is really actually one of the sort of biggest distractions that happens in this arena because it's actually the like removal of the political context that takes this critique that can be so powerful and renders it basically um, only useful to elite capture and reproducing the status quo and seeking to sort of justify and almost take these negative social determinants of health and just, as we're saying, sort of naturalize them as the way things are. Which is why I want to just quickly bring in another quote from uh, pharmacist, epidemiologist, and health services researcher, Danya Cotto. Um, This is from Danya's 2020 essay called Public Health and the Promise of Palestine in the Journal of Palestine Studies, um, which I think offers a kind of approach to social determinants of health, which is like more in line with the way that we try and use it on the show when we're using it, we're trying to force, I think, the the sort of lens of politicization back onto some of these frameworks. So uh, Danya writes, quote, as an interdisciplinary field of inquiry, public health, unlike clinical medicine, is interested in the prevention of disease and the promotion of health in populations rather than in the treatment of disease in individuals. If we accept here the definition of health articulated by the World Health Organization as, quote, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease, we understand that both individual and public health are determined predominantly by the structural and political context within which medical care is received. Defined in epidemiology as determinants, these include the environmental, economic, and social contexts within which people work, eat, play, love, struggle, and live. In other words, public health is political in as much as our social and economic contexts are political. And I would add, there's really no way to separate the two. But as you're saying, Abby, essentially what we've oriented our entire sort of knowledge reproduction structure around is around denying the political aspect of the social determinants of health. Yeah, totally. So, you know, we we alluded to this earlier, but the, you know, the social determinants framework really grows out of a much older framework um, that is more commonly referred to as social medicine. This is the history of social medicine is the thing that gets kind of cyclically, you know, forgotten and rediscovered with each successive generation of, you know, grad students in public (laughs) health and and whoever else. Um, Social medicine really has its origins in industrial revolution Europe. Engels is one of the first, which I mean is is interesting because I don't think Engels focused too much on on health specifically throughout his career, but Engels really wrote kind of the foundational text in social medicine with uh, on the condition of the working classes in England. Uh, he was one of the first maybe the first person to, I mean, we could do a whole podcast episode just about black lung, but he was one of the first people yeah. to identify black lung as, as an occupational disease among um, coal miners. And by uh, like a is, long time too, which is by a long crazy. time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Engels really observed that, you know, the, the conditions of, of the working classes in England were very poor as a result of, you know, the conditions of the industrial revolution, people, being essentially forced to work for wages, um, living in extremely substandard and unhealthy housing, being crowded together, doing repetitive and dangerous work, you know, in unventilated environments and so on and so forth. And that's kind of where 
that inquiry of Engels is where kind of the term, I mean, he coined the term social murder, um, which I'm sure has been mentioned on this podcast. Um, yeah, we before. did an episode about it with Nate Holdren, actually. Yes. Yeah. Now, I don't know if uh, Rudolf Virchow, I don't know how you pronounce his last name because it's German and I think that's weird, but Rudolf Virchow was like a cellular pathologist in, in Germany. He was sort of a contemporary of Engels. And he really developed, uh, he's one of the sort of other founding figures of what we now understand as social medicine, based on work that he did during, I believe it was an outbreak of typhoid in a region of what is currently Poland. Um, And again, you know, very similar to Engels, uh, Virchow observed that the social conditions that people found themselves in were really contributing to, you know, their susceptibility um, to typhoid and to the, to the outcomes that they were experiencing with typhoid. We had talked about um, Salvador Allende, who was the president of Chile um, until the 1973 coup, is another very important figure in the history of social medicine, as is Che Guevara, who was trained as a physician and wrote, I believe, like his, his motorcycle diaries of his uh, motorcycle tour of South America is basically a social medicine text, um, as are several texts of Allende's. So, you know, I've, I've kind of jumped from, you know, the 18, <laughs> the 1800s, like all the way through to basically contemporary times. But this idea that that social conditions are sort of primarily responsible for population health is very old. And, you know, this is not something that's that's not known. I always get like very frustrated with, you know, people like Josh Barrow, <laughs> you know, who are like, well, you just want to use your public health knowledge as a as a way to get to obtain your political ends. And it's like, you dumbass, like this is all like this is well established. Like I didn't invent this idea like just to piss you off. You know what I mean? Right. But yeah, so there has been like some kind of there have been successive movements to sort of like address the social determinants of health comprehensively. The World Health Organization, you know, at the conclusion of World War II was like moving in the direction of addressing the social determinants of health. Obviously, you know, lots of stuff happened in the post-war period. And one of the things that happened was that the kind of balance of resources and of sort of political might and political authority shifted from the World Health Organization to the World Bank. And so, for example, like, there was a 1978 conference at Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan, um, which was, I mean, and this is referenced, you'll learn about this if you go to grad school for public health. You know, it was kind of like the social determinants conference. And it's like, OK, like, what are the things that that we need to do in order to improve, you know, child infant mortality? You know what I mean? And to ensure a healthier healthier outcome. You know, essentially what that conference converged on was this idea of like universal primary care, you know, like very much like a prevention approach. But unfortunately, I feel like the political economy of the of the world was was moving in a direction that was not amenable to that. And the relative power of the World Bank meant that um, a lot of these sort of development programs and a lot of the health programs undertaken by these international agencies were actually undertaken through the World Bank, which had maybe a different value structure, certainly different <laughs> stakeholders. Um, and they kind of alighted on this idea of like, oh, just selective primary care, which is just a beautiful uh, turn of phrase to me. But there kind of was, you know, a somewhat global, a somewhat coordinated like international focus on the social determinants of health from, you know, what I think is is more of a social medicine 
uh, type of perspective that was engaged, you know, with with political considerations of, you know, wealth distribution um, and political equality and things like that. But as we know, you know, the, the world we're living in is not the world that has like addressed all the social determinants of health. Um, and I really think that, you know, the influence of the World Bank and neoliberalization and kind of structural adjustment in a lot of, uh, as we say, you know, developing countries, a lot of the interventions that were intended to improve on sort of the material and social conditions that affect health ended up getting tied to these, you know, <laughs> to these World Bank programs, essentially. And again, you know, as is kind of in parallel to like the structure of, of science in the US, I think a lot of what happened is like, the World Bank is run by economists, you know, they want to see program evaluation, they like, Again, like there's a preference for articulating and understanding the social determinants of health in this kind of disaggregated, disarticulated um, way that can be easily sort of measured and reported, <laughs> um, you know, to, to governments that are funding the body or, or whatever. Um, so neoliberalism, global neoliberalism and like the acceleration of neoliberal capitalism in the last, I don't know, 50 years has really kind of torpedoed not only, you know, the sort of like preventive public health practice, but it's also sort of, I think, served to sever, you know, the social determinants themselves from the the fundamental causes of why the social determinants are the way they are. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I would only just sort of add that one of the important things, too, I think, is that when this kind of idea of like selective primary health care was proposed in relation to the original framework, which was kind of like the original framework of social determinants of health that the WHO was working with, recognized that we needed to that like the world's the quote unquote the world's economy um, would actually be impacted in a positive way if we took care of the world's poor in some sense. And that was kind of like the, the sort of unifying mission and framework. And by the time you sort of get to the late 70s, what you have with this selective primary health care model that sort of comes in to replace the original, quote unquote, inefficient goal of, you know, providing the world's poor with the basic <laughs> needs of survival <laughs> right. Um, the inefficient goal of changing the political economy. Exactly. So inefficient. You know, th this was um, this selective primary health care framework, which was sort of like, OK, well, what if we just made sure that, you know, all the people in this locality have um, treatment for this one disease? You know, you see this in a lot of like the kind of UNICEF programs that you saw in the 80s and 90s where you would have people going in just, oh, we're just treating malaria. Oh, we're just treating typhoid here right. and these kinds mm -hmm. of approaches to public health care that um, top down technological. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And like very One weird trick. And they're, they're kind of the interventions that like require the least amount of input and involvement from the people who are being intervened upon. Right. Like it, it, this is a very much like a sort of one sided framework. And this selective primary health care framework was literally proposed as being more financially palatable, more pragmatic and more politically unthreatening. So that's like a right. really important point, which well, is that yeah. part of why social determinants of health has been defanged is because the context of social medicine is a politically threatening context. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's very important because all of these things, all these changes that you're talking about, they do a lot of work to sort of, you know, pretend to depoliticize health, which is we've said, you know, you can't like health and politics are inextricable. Um, but I, I think I think this uh, sort of turn 
that we're talking about where neoliberalism sort of intersects with social determinants of health and the uh, WHO agenda and and stuff like this gets sort of translated into all of these health policies, uh, like really across the world. Um, Vicente Navarro has a very to the point sort of uh, eight point rundown (laughs) of this, actually, that I think just just listing these things might actually sound very familiar to anyone who has, for instance, been listening to our COVID coverage for a long time and has heard a lot of the complaints that we've had about the way that health is articulated in a political sense in the United States. But he says, for example, uh, quote, translation of neoliberal policies in the health sector has created a new policy environment that emphasizes one, the need to reduce public responsibility for the health of populations. Two, mm-hmm. the need to increase choice and markets. Three, the need to transform national health services into insurance-based healthcare systems. Four, the need to privatize medical care. Five, a discourse in which patients are referred to as clients and planning is replaced by markets. Six, individuals' personal responsibility for their own health improvements. Seven, an understanding of health promotion as behavioral change. Mm-hmm. And eight, the need for individuals to increase their personal responsibility by adding social capital to their endowment. It's COVID response. So. Yeah. I want to point out this is from 2009. Yeah. You know, like yeah. this is not like this wasn't written last year. This stuff is out there, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, it's it occurs to me that 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 from the time that the WHO and UNICEF are bringing in these concepts of social determinants of health explicitly. The, 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 there are huge stakes uh, yeah. in what you talk about as a social determinants of so, social determinant of health that you can manipulate or change. Um, because once you start talking about it as something that you could manipulate or change, then that is an implicate like because we're talking about things that are outside of the domain of like formal care and the clinic. Um, then that necessarily implicates the political economy. So the fact that in the 80s, you know, that uh, this Almada conference states that they're studying or that the regimes that they're studying are, in fact, places like China, um, uh, Kerala in India, which is sort of like a a Mm -hmm. communist uh, state in India, Cuba, um, that by talking about, oh, the fact that these uh, countries are, you know, producing a basic level of health that seems surprising given the relatively low per capita GDP, you start having to like talk more explicitly about the fact that there are things that a uh, simple uh, sort of one-off intervention isn't going to change because the political context and the institutions um, and and the power of the working class is so different uh, in these different countries from the ones that you might imagine they're like trying to, you know, export Mm. um, the capitalist version of of public health uh, too. So like one way of thinking about it is that what we're seeing with COVID and and the things that seem shocking that public health people are saying now and and the sort of individuation uh, that seems like such an abandonment of like the public health ethos is like that's a transformation that's been long underway. Mm -hmm. Um, And that now we're finally like the, you know, the uh, you know imperial metropole is now finally seeing people having to state that more explicitly because the the contradictions are emerging here too. Right. 
Absolutely. And I think one of the things that well, there's not a lot of like total recognition on is the fact that so often throughout, I would say, the sort of recent history of, of um, social medicine and this approach to how are we going to sort of better world health through public-private capitalist interventions has really been about kind of taking findings about the social determinants and finding ways to, I guess, leverage or sort of read those findings as um, reading into health, not fitting under this sort of framework of like existing within a social context, but as existing within this sort of like individual lifestyle choice context. And so What's, you know, what's actually been happening since the 60s and 70s, right, is that we've seen these findings about social context and about political context basically taken up through elite capture and transformed into evidentiary support for the kind of like reduced state responsibility for health that we're seeing right now in the COVID response or the kind of behavioral individualistic frameworks that that we see, you know, basically send hundreds of millions of people into health bankruptcy rather than give them the care that they need. And this is these are like, you know, the kind of discrete decisions that also, you know, the ways that social determinants of health can be used is also to basically make these discrete decisions look like a kind of act of like cosmic destiny, right? That right. that really it's not a social and political process that is depriving people of healthcare in the United States. It's really just that, you know, we have a fraught political environment and health is being politicized and all of these bad health outcomes are just such a train wreck and and we've got to do something so people can help themselves, right? And that that's a framework that looks at very real political observations about the social determinants of health and strips the politics out of it in order to essentially, you know, support the neoliberal individualization of, of health as a consumer commodity good. Yeah, well said. <laughs> well, and and so I mean and, and that's actually as health becomes this consumer good, it becomes even less likely, I think, uh, you know, all else equal, that you're going to see social determinant style interventions go back into the domains that that exist like outside of formal healthcare. Because once healthcare becomes a consumer good, it becomes a a you know a way of generating all of this uh, capital and thinking about all of the sort of the complexes of of healthcare that now dominate so many cities and like dominate the economy of so many cities in the United States um, and elsewhere um, as you have a population that is, you know, increasingly facing illness and illness that is like generated by their social conditions. Policymakers now have, you know, it's like the thumb is on the scale of investing in that system and then calling whatever they do there social determinants and not (laughs) investing like further in things like social supports in better workplace regulations uh, or conditions of work. But like once you have this like profit center uh, where you can uh, begin to generate all this, this capital, then you're going to say, well, you know, uh, maybe the hospital is going to like buy some housing or something or like the health system is going to like buy some housing, like, and that's social determinant. So like, we're going to like invest in like the bike share program in the city. And like that's social determinants. And but like ultimately what you cannot do, uh, um, you know, all else equal. I mean, there's there are contradictions that can be exploited here also. But like what you can't do uh, under this kind of regime is talk about the fact that 
we like that that so many social supports have disappeared that the US is like a a singular kind of country in terms of like not having uh paid leave um all of that stuff becomes so like off the equilibrium path of politics right and and i think the thing that's really sort of important that i don't know if we've actually said out loud is the fact that that political framework and the political reality that we live in, right, that that in and of itself, that limiting perspective that Phil's talking about, that is a major social determinant of health that is a negative one that is preventing us from doing things like standing up programs in the United States that could actually equitably distribute resources like a kind of American NHS. And it's interesting that so many of the thinkers who've engaged with these ideas from the perspective of recognizing that politics is incredibly necessary to this type of analysis, if you actually want it to be liberatory, those people have really, I think, gone much further than challenging, you know, medicalization or, or the, the sort of financialization or, or any of these other aspects. And they've said that really more than anything else, one of the sort of social determinants that would be required to overhaul the political economy of health is actual sort of community empowerment is making people who are policymakers actually accountable to people who experience the negative consequences about their decisions not to, you know, benefit uh, poor people or not to try and make the lives of everyone free from negative social determinants of health. And so this is one of those kind of key frameworks where you have a lot of people who are working with these ideas from a you know, a, a perspective that's really actually trying to orient its critique towards industry, towards capitalism and towards wealth inequality, that you have um, this kind of idea of an NHS or a system and systems for planning and provisioning care and making sure that we distribute care, not just to everyone, but also to people geographically speaking, is a key priority. And, and I think it kind of looks away from this market ideology that for so many um, is the only way that we're sort of acceptably allowed to talk about healthcare, which is in within the sort of realm of making small, uh, small little changes to the markets in order to tone down some of the pain and make them a little bit more fair and favorable. But right. ultimately, the market itself runs counter to these kinds of ideas that would support more positive social determinants of health, that would allow for more liberatory approaches to public health and medicine. But in and of itself, like the fact of the matter that this is kind of off the table, that it ruins lives and makes people sick. Well, and I think this is why it's important to think about and view this in a really long-term historical context too. I mean, in some ways, if you think about all of the contestation that has happened over health, because, you know, again, you know, we have to say very clearly again, you know, health is itself a social construct. Health is a politically constructed term in the first place. And we can see, I think if you, if you kind of look back at sort of the long arc obviously we could go much much further back and talk about how you know not to be all guy talking about greek history on a podcast or whatever but like it, you know pre-hippocrates or something <laughs> the idea of health is oh like gods smited you with disease or something and it's some sort of which obviously connects to i think some of the moral moral failing frameworks mm -hmm. or whatever that we hear still today all the time um, then ironically, if we want to talk about social medicine, Hippocrates, like his whole deal, so much of the thing about how they defined health is like fifth century BC is talking about, you know, here's a program for what you should eat, how long of a walk you should go on every day, 
uh, how much you should make sure to rest so long as you're not one of the people who is compelled to labor because it's always a class thing, obviously, even at the beginning. Um, and you know, how many bowel movements you should have literally. Um, but all, you know, that all sounds like kind of social determinant stuff. Like, are you comf are you comfortable? Are you resting enough? Whatever. And then we've talked a lot about like the 19th century a lot here, but on into the 18th century, for example, you have all this stuff like on one hand, there are certain uh, people, I can't remember the name of this individual off the top of my head, but who basically, uh, I don't think this idea is well advised, but who kind of writes about a totalitarian police state of health, basically to protect the public's health, um, mm -hmm. which is, I think there's a reason that, you know, people like us wouldn't necessarily draw him as a comparison for the. It's for, what Vinay um, Prasad thinks is actually happening. Right now. Right, yeah, exactly. Basically. Um, but then, you know, around the same time, you have what, like Rousseau and other people writing about how health is a matter of education and like the edu educated individual, because, you know, it's the enlightenment or whatever. Mm -hmm. The educated mm -hmm. individual is going to, you know, take it upon themselves to, you know, whatever, you know, the story, it's the same, it's the same shit. And then, you know, we mentioned Virchow, like uh, the, the typhus thing that Abby was talking about. Um, there's this great line from that, which again, you know, just resonates with all the things, this, this entire arc of what we've been talking about. I think it all resonates with narratives that we'll hear surrounding COVID. Um, Virchow in the 19th century encounters resistance to his, you know, proclamations that like, we have to think about health, population health, and individual health as component of population health um, in terms of its social and political context. And he describes the resistance to this as, quote, our politics were those of prophylaxis. Our opponents preferred those of palliation, as in think about like palliative care or whatever, as in, you know, right. the, th the bad thing happens to the disease, the now diseased body or whatever a person gets typhus, person gets covid. And then the best we can offer them is palliation, you know, is um, easing their suffering, easing their like inevitable and or morally brought upon themselves suffering or whatever. And so yeah. it's again, you know, it's a long arc. But I think that what I'm trying to get at here is basically I think it's really important that we always interrogate not only this political and social construction of health and the things like the social determinants of health, but also the degree to which health is very obviously even as a concept, something that is wielded politically. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. So as we've been talking, I've been kind of thinking of an example from Pittsburgh, which uh, regular listeners will know is my hometown. There's a lot of Pittsburgh like representation on this pod, which I appreciate. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, this is this story is about uh, the the lead crisis, like the water lead crisis in in Pittsburgh uh, of a few years ago. And I don't know if this is like widely known, but a few years ago, I want to say like 2016, 2015, 2016, some kind of routine water like home water quality monitoring revealed lead like scary, you know, large. There's no safe amount of lead. But, you know, led well over um, the the so-called action limits in the drinking water of of several residences in in Pittsburgh. And on the one hand, this is a social determinant story at a very basic level. Right. People who live in older housing that are more likely to have lead service lines coming off the main into their houses. Um, you know, they're more likely to be poor. They're more like more likely to be, you know, black people in Pittsburgh that live in um, this older housing a very clear example of how, you know, your housing can affect your health. I think there's also another layer to this story that is kind of 
underappreciated and gets to some of the deeper considerations about, you know, the social determinants of health and social medicine and how threatening like a real social determinants analysis is to, for example, let's say capitalism. So Pittsburgh is in Western Pennsylvania and it is located in the Marcellus Shale, which shale is a type of rock underground that traps bubbles of natural gas. And I mean, if you've been in the U.S. <laughs> at all for the past 10 years, you're probably familiar with fracking, which is this process of fracturing that rock to release the gas. So it's kind of very intensive, extractive work, I guess. And it requires a lot of water. And that water has to have a lot of, you know, very heavy metals, very toxic chemicals in it. There are, you know, some regulations about how that water can be stored, you know, once it's been used and is is toxic. Those regulations are not perfect. Fracking water gets into the municipal water supply of Pittsburgh, uh, it seems, fairly frequently. Uh, at least at, at this time of a few years ago. I can't speak to, to present day. So this, this frack water is kind of leaching out of the, the pits that it's stored in once it's been used, you know, all over western Pennsylvania. And consequently... The municipal drinking water in Pittsburgh uh, ended up being full of heavy metals, you know, things like bromine and those. And now I'm sorry that my water chemistry is not like totally uh, up to date. So I'm going to do my best here. But the, the basic idea is that the normal sort of treatment, you know, with with chlorine of the water was promoting the formation of these compounds brominated uh, trihalomethanes or something, things that you don't really want in drinking water because this water is so contaminated. So the, the normal sort of chlorination um, process was resulting in this, you know, byproduct that's not really great. And so the, the, the Pittsburgh Municipal Water Authority, I forget what it is, but they changed some aspect of the treatment, some agent that they were using to treat the water. And that caused the water to corrode lead pipes. So anybody that had a lead service line, you know, the 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 water that they were getting off of the off of the main was was corrosive to their pipes and was causing lead to leach into the drinking water. Now, str- I think, you know, the the straightforward and I think this is what the city has done, the straightforward solution to this is simply to pay to replace all of those lead service lines. But I think that there is a kind of social medicine critique to be leveled which is, you know, Fracking, this intensive environmental degradation, you know, for extractive purposes is harmful to health. And it's harmful yeah. to health in ways that aren't straightforward, that aren't straightforwardly predictable, right? Like they're very complex, like chains of, of causation that lead from, you know, opening up uh, fracking, shale drilling around Pittsburgh, you know, to then this this complicated chain of causation that, that led to lead contamination in drinking water. But, you know, it's it's one thing to make a demand of the city and say, hey, you know, I know you didn't cause this, but you got to pay to replace these lines. And it's another thing to make a demand of the broader political economy and say, hey, like, why is you know, why is the city of Pittsburgh essentially subsidizing or paying to to clean up, you know, the, the externality of all of these fracking companies? Um, and, and why are we doing this? You know, and why is this allowed? Like it's. It's pretty clear that, you know, that fracking has harmful consequences for health. So I feel like that I don't know if this has been useful, but I feel like it kind of illustrates like the dual 
like the dual face of social determinants. And, you know, like the, the less structure, the less structural interpretation is not always a bad one. You know, people getting their service lines replaced is a good, is a good outcome. And I'm, I'm happy to see it happen. Um, but, right, but I think the point is really good, which is that yeah. is in the, the absence yeah. of also stopping the fracking that caused the additional damage in the first place. Yeah. My right. politics are those only of prophylaxis. So <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and if you're going to be pedantic, like are the service lines, the fundamental underlying dynamic of yep. the lead poisoning? Absolutely not. Right. So addressing the surface lines is not in fact improving the social determinants of health. It's improving one of the knock on components of the fundamental yep. dynamic, not the dynamic itself. And our water, our air quality are still really bad. Still, like, really bad in in Pittsburgh, you know? But this actually, I think, illustrates something about... And and, and this isn't just uh, a phenomenon of, like, health health services research. It just happens to be the case that that it adheres here, which is when you talk about something like social determinants of health, it's such a... uh, The way that the concept is, like, structured, it's so broad that it ends up really allowing you to draw the boundaries of what you're going to treat as the cause the, as the main causal story to focus on yeah mm-hmm. um uh the, whatever way you want which is why you know people can say oh you're just sort of like wielding this politically but the the point is that the um it, it almost is the case that like the social determinants of health that get treated in national, you know, healthy population plans are the ones that political elites find prudent to uh, politically prudent uh, to care about. Right. Which is why, you know, if you go and look at social determinants, there's there's all this, you know, research on like uh, how somehow like insurers are going to like bring in dealing with social determinants as a way of like, you know, controlling their costs. And in fact, like there's a lot of work, you know, within CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, on like we're going to like deal with social determinants as a means primarily of doing cost control. Mm-hmm. And the the point is that the you know we we can talk about these things as adhering in the world, but to the extent that the institutions that we have for uh, making decisions that have the authority and that have the resources to define uh, health to the extent that they are the way that they are, they're going to actually keep reproducing this knowledge regime mm-hmm. that forces us down this path of thinking about social determinants in this really narrow way. I think that's like the story you tell is like kind of a good example of how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important to kind of have these conversations because I was I was talking um, to Artie a little bit about this yesterday, but I've been talking to some other, you know, colleagues, friends of mine. And I think that, um, you know, graduate school for for public health people is really like ignorance producing, like more so than instilling specific skills. It like produces specific patterns of ignorance. Right. And kind of delimits Mm -hmm. the acceptable boundaries of inquiry, you know, to things that are fundable or not overtly, you know, political and things like that. But the lesson, I don't know, the lesson from, you know, social medicine from Engels, certainly I would say from Marx, there's a lot of public health in, in Marx's writings as well. The lesson is that, you know, we're in like dialectical relationship with everything. You know what I mean? Like it's not possible to sever 
um, the social determinants of health from the political economic arrangement that produced them, it drives me up a wall with a lot of uh, like policy oriented public health research is like, oh, we're just evaluating the effects of these policies. And it's like, well, but someone designed these policies like they didn't just come into being just like disparities, you know. I prefer the term inequalities because inequalities are made, you know, disparities sounds a little bit too passive. Um, And I think that like the value of the social determinants framework, you know, if we can avoid the trap of, Oh, how do we incent people to choose to live in richer neighborhoods or, you know, how do we uh, empower doctors to prescribe uh, years of education, you know, or job opportunities. Mm -hmm. If we can avoid that, you know, there's there's nothing more powerful, I think, than than a social medicine analysis, because it is foundational and it does challenge the foundational, not just the foundational assumptions, you know, and the rhetorical stuff, but it challenges, you know, the the legitimacy of the very economic, political and social structure of of society. And it's kind of a running joke among, I mean, a lot of people that are there, especially going through the process of education in public health to be like, wow, it really is like the capitalism is the is the problem in every scenario like there's no way out of this stuff besides like total social revolution and like the task of educating people in public health is making them is training them to not be able to see that i think Um, well right because i think the, the typical the typical gestalt is something like what is the least amount i would have to do yep in order to like make a you know um minimally acceptable uh, effective intervention. How can and I show progress without pissing off anyone important? How can Measure I write right? a slide but, deck that gets but me a little But the thing treat. is, <laughs> yeah. but it's not even, but I think the way that people conceptualize it, it's like if those categories were in their heads, that would be a whole different question. But the right. point is that it's actually shorn of all of those categories, right? You're not talking about power. You're not talking about uh, any mm-hmm. of that. You're just thinking about like, how do I do science? How do I do a public, like what is it to be a professional blank, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And the whole logic of that is demonstrate that I, that this, this sort of thing, this, this bobble, this widget, whatever is, is now like in the language of the patient centered outcomes research Institute is not only effective, but also will self sustain that I will not need to fund it past the point of the grant that it will just go on. Like that's the other criterion in the arm for like a lot of this, like PCORI work. And and so, like, once you're down that pathway and that's what you consider to be the source and summit of your professional life, then, like, you're not even thinking. Like, it's just it's impossible for you then to even conceptualize what else it is you might do or the fact that maybe the most effective work that you could do is, you know, being in solidarity or like working in solidarity mm-hmm. uh, with people who are you know, most negatively affected, you're like, I'm going to like produce my own um, and every my own like like research program and everything about the uh, sort of professional incentive structure moves you in that direction. But I think what you're saying, Abby, is that like to actually deal with social determinants of health, if if they if that term means anything requires actually completely rethinking what it is that people gain when they, you know, become epidemiologists or like public health researchers. I mean, and I think this gets us kind of to the the bigger point, which is that it's important not only to uh, think about this and how it could be used politically, but also I think, you know, to challenge the left a little bit to really fucking take this seriously, frankly, because mm-hmm. I think 
you know, this is one of the reasons I think that I keep returning almost to the framing that the social determinants of health show us that health is political. Mm -hmm. Health is inseparable Mm -hmm. from politics and is always political, not just politically constructed, but politically used. I mean, ill health is the threat that is used to discipline the labor force. It is like health is used as definitionally as a demarcation between the productive body and the unproductive body. Right. I mean, and when health is abstracted as physical and cognitive capacity, it's also used to define who is and is not allowed to define themselves as part of society. Right. right? Um, Mm -hmm. Who has who has (laughs) the ability to participate in civic and political life. Right. And so, for example, the situation that Abby brought up with fracking and lead water lines is a fantastic one because there are because you can't attack those things like the if all of that is true right if health as this existential concept is wielded in american politics and you know politics generally i think to demarcate basically positions of uh power or ability or whatever within the political economy then we need to take very seriously the the broad you know again population level impacts on health that things like that scenario have Right. And Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, I sort of hope that maybe the kind of bottom line takeaway that people might have from this episode is to think about the social determinants of health, not just as political or not just as ways to sort of describe what constitutes health, but as ways to name how the way that the state makes itself is like marked on our lives, right? How the decisions that the state makes in order to construct itself, those are our social determinants of health. It's also a way of naming how the state has an impact on slow death, on illness, on workplace accident, on respiratory viruses. It's a much sort of broader thing too, but it at a most sort of at the most basic level, it's also a process of naming the state for what it is, which is something that extracts health and that relies upon these extractive pathways. Right. And I think it's really important to sort of take a step back and look at these concepts in the ways that um, we did in this episode, because not only is it sort of subject to elite capture and it's important to talk about things the real way, but it also offers a kind of interesting framework to sort of rethink what research is for and what health is and what the state is and what these determinants are. They're not forces of nature. They're not naturalized. These are the result of policy priorities, discrete decision-making, and and capital. And social determinants of health, yes, is one way to talk about health outcomes. But yes, on the other hand, it's another way to talk about how the state is made um, in order to affect certain health outcomes in certain populations, which I think is probably the best place to leave it for today. Yeah. Abby, I have, as always. I have one closing thought. Do it. Go for if it. You, if you don't mind. To 100% to everything that you're saying, B. And I would also frame everything that you can name as a social determinant of health. Wages, housing, whatever the case may be. Every one of those things is also a crack in the edifice of capitalism, right? And the story that we all understand, you know, the story that we're all taught to internalize about capitalism being maximally efficient and maximally fair. Um Every social determinant, you know, represents a a crack in that edifice. And that's a place that is a potential 
or, you know, an actual, as the case may be, site of struggle. It's a place where you can force your hands into the crack and try to like pry this system apart. So that's how I would encourage listeners to think about it. I think that's the place to leave it for today, (laughs) actually. (laughs) Thanks for Um, indulging me. (laughs) Abby, as always, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. Um, If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.